you're listening to Pod Academy. This podcast is the first in a lecture series put on by the IF Project, a free university in London, in autumn 2019. The lectures, under the overall title of Between the Lines, Lies, Truth and Fiction in an Age of Populism, explore how the current undertow of elusive notions of truth and fast-flowing information are having an impact on all aspects of our lives in art, politics, science, philosophy, health, economics and psychology, to name but a few. This is the first lecture in the series, and it's by Professor Will Davies of Goldsmiths, University of London. He explores the ideas in his recent book, Nervous States, where he considers why we can't agree on what's true anymore and how emotions shape the times we live in. of the uh, 23rd of June 2016, a night that probably many of us remember, I uh, probably all got our memories of that referendum night, I stayed up all night sort of watching these um, rather surprising results coming in, uh, I think I took this photo on my, on my phone at about sort of four in the morning with this sort of sense of slight sort of shock as to what was going on, um, and uh, yeah, look it says 4.02am is when I took that, and began to try and assemble some thoughts initially, and what I thought was uh, her was coming into our society in ways that many people have not really anticipated. We all know that the polls didn't predict that result. We all know that most people kind of thought that, that the status quo was sort of just intrinsically sustainable, that it would just survive uh, in and of itself, partly because experts said that it was actually a good thing, economists said it was a good thing, and I'm going to come back to that in a bit. And one of the first things I did the next day, I wrote, a, I wrote this blog post, which actually went incredibly, it's probably the most rave thing I've ever written, actually. It went very viral, because it was partly because I think it was the next day, and people were looking for uh, stories and possible explanations, tentative explanations as to what was going on. Um, and that actually led to a rather circuitous route to me uh, writing the book. But it also started to, a, a process of thinking. And right from the beginning, I, was, I felt that there was a mixture of different types of factors involved in this particular uh, democratic and, and populist moment, some of which were economic, and I think that was uh, clear, and I'll come back to that, some of which were not economic and concerned issues to do with technology and culture and so on. One of the great advantages of being uh, at Goldsmiths, where I work, is that interdisciplinarity uh, is something that is almost unnormal, really, is that it's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to kind of pluck bits of psychology, bits of cultural studies, bits of sociology uh, and economics and put them together to try and make sense of the world in a way that isn't necessarily acceptable uh, in, in more orthodox universities, I guess you might say. And that's partly why the book uh, is, starts to weaves together different aspects of things like health, economics, philosophy, uh, and so on, to try and make sense of this disorientating moment. Now, one of the things that I think quickly became clear very soon, in fact, during the campaign itself, was that what we were witnessing wasn't just potentially a, a, a change in the economic regime of the UK, but that there seemed to be questions around the status of truth itself seemed to have become politicised in certain ways. And this is what I think was very shocking to many on the Remain side of the debate, to many Liberals, and of course we're seeing this, the Queen herself got the wrong end of this only a few days ago, we've discovered now, but this, this, this sense that actually truth is not really quite such a sort of constraining force uh, in public life any longer, and we all probably recognise this bus, you know, with this thing that was not empirically, factually valid, but nevertheless was put out there. Um, and so the question of truth and the question of facts seem to be at the absolute centre of these political de- events. And of course that arose uh, just as forcefully in the United States uh, later on in the year with the election of uh, Donald Trump. Many of you will know this uh, famous quote from Michael Gove. He said, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. And he was rather ridiculed and mocked by many people for, for saying, well, what an outrageous thing to say. You know, surely, you know, when you go to the doctor, you haven't had enough of experts. Or when you get on an airplane, you haven't had enough of the engineers who have checked the, the wings and that kind of thing. But I think in some ways he was also describing something that was palpably true in certain respects, was that on some level, expertise in its traditional, rather, I suppose you might say, liberal 
form had uh, started to become targeted as something that was maybe self-interested, maybe stemmed from certain particular locations in the country, was a kind of urban phenomenon, um, and that it was being uh, targeted in certain ways. And one of the things I think which is always, I find this map, which is the, the Brexit map of the UK, I might add my book is not all about Brexit, but it's just where we're starting, is that in this map, and blue is leave and yellow is remain, Scotland kind of explains itself, Northern Ireland has its own particular uh, politics surrounding this. But if you look particularly at England there, what you can see is obviously London, there's a huge cluster of, of remain there. There's this area that goes out to Bristol, up to Oxford, and then back down the M4 to London, which is really one of the kind of main hubs of global capital in the UK. It's these companies like Microsoft and GlaxoSmithKline and these sorts of companies out in Reading and these sorts of places where there is huge levels of, of, of foreign direct investment, uh, very high value-added jobs and so on, a lot of wealth being created in this area. And then, I and mean, this isn't, isn't entirely the case because obviously there are exceptions around the, uh, and so on, you've got the large cities like Manchester. But beyond that, what you've got is particularly university towns. So you've got Norwich, you've got Exeter, you've got obviously Oxford and Cambridge, uh, you couldn't describe Newcastle as a university town necessarily, but nevertheless, it was the part of Newcastle that bucked the broader trend of the northeast uh, that was around the, the university. And that again, this question of knowledge and this question of expertise seemed to be one of the kind of dividing forces that was that was coming uh, down the, the middle of, of the society in various ways. Now, there have been lots written by various people about other ways in which those divides clustered in terms of age, in terms of graduates versus non-graduates and this sort of, these sorts of uh, phenomena. But it's interesting that some of these sorts of political divides uh, are also uh, e economic ones as well. One of the things that was shocking to many uh, observers, and particularly the economists and the newspapers like the Financial Times, which is what this is from, was that people seemed to be acting against their own economic interests in various ways. Lots of people seem to be voting not to be richer. I mean, this is a, a, a sort of much debated question about the, the vote, but... This was a graph from the Financial Times showing, you probably can't read, it's a bit blurred, but it says, leave vote was strongest in regions most economically dependent on the EU. Again, so there's a sort of sense that conventional assumptions about how people behave, the choices they make, the way in which they will inevitably act towards their greatest welfare in some way, seem to be breaking down in various ways. And that, I think, is also very interesting. There are other things, I think, which I think where the question of expertise and knowledge have, uh, in the years since, we've now had a good three years to start to really reflect very sort of heavily on all of this, and, and in the United States as well, and across Europe. But there's been studies now showing that areas where support for right-wing populists is greatest in the European Union, in France and Italy and so on, map quite closely on areas where there is a problem with the anti-vax movement. That is, people who uh, fear that vaccinations are going to give their children uh, autism and this sort of thing, and these are causing these uh, major public health problems to the measles and so on. So again, there is a kind of fraying of trust in the basic edifice of expertise and of facts that seems to be part and parcel of this democratic change that we're witnessing um, at the moment. Equally, there's very stark uh, data uh, in the United States about trust in the, the mainstream media, by which they mean CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, this sort of thing between Clinton voters and Trump voters in 2016. That trust in those institutions is far higher amongst Clinton voters than amongst Trump voters. Also, one of the things which I point out in the book, there were studies showing, uh, I haven't got the numbers at my fingertips, but um, trust in federal statistics agencies to correct, to tell you the truth, is far higher amongst Clinton voters than it was amongst Trump voters. There is a sort of a, a mentality of fundamental doubt amongst many supporters of uh, a leader such as Donald Trump and so on, that actually these institutions that happen to be clustered in these particular places, in places like Washington, D.C. and New York and so on, are not entirely to be trusted. There was also, this is a slightly separate issue, but there's been these really fascinating but concerning studies in the U.K. about conspiracy theories showing that actually in the U.K. the majority of, of people believe that the government, on the topic of immigration in particular, that the government is actually lying about what they know about the amount of immigration coming into the country. So things like statistics, which might once have been looked to to somehow create a sort of shared reality for us, 
don't seem to be doing that job. And that as they decline in their ability to do that job, the ability of people to actually recognize that they have certain things in common with other people in other different cultural backgrounds in their own society goes into decline at the same time. Now, there are all sorts of... In, in the summer of 2017, three books came out called Post-Truth. Matthew Dankhoven, and James Ball, and Evan Davis, they all wrote books about post-truth. And it was sort of like, well, you know, we know what truth is. Journalists have got truth. Experts have got truth. You've got liars over here, and they don't believe, they don't like the truth, so they try and cover it up, and we just need to kind of, you know, start shouting the truth even more loudly. Now, I can sort of understand that sentiment, and it's also the case that certain newspapers like the New York Times responded to the election of Trump with a, a sort of passionate saying, we will carry on holding the flame of truth in the face of this liar. Now, of course, I've, <laughs> given the choice, I'm on the New York Times' side in that. But what that doesn't do so much, uh, and what I wanted to do with the book, was to try and understand where some of these sorts of conflicts and some of these sorts of fragmentations of our uh, infrastructure of common, common worlds, uh, are what's driving them. My background actually is in sociology. My PhD is in sociology. And one of the things sociology tries to understand is what are the sort of broader social uh, contexts and drivers and causes of, of these sort of uh, surface level um, uh, uh, changes and so on. One thing which I think is very important in understanding this is that we need to get away from the idea that knowledge and expertise and truth are sort of obvious, that they're just given. That, that, well, of course, you know, these particular scientists, they've got the truth, and, or these journalists and so on. We need to think a little bit about the politics of this. And I want to just tell you a, an anecdote, just to start with, because this is just an example of how I think all of us now, in today's era, are vulnerable to different ways of understanding what it means to know the world. And the anecdote concerns going to my brother's wedding uh, a couple of years ago in Italy. And uh, he had organized his wedding very, very effectively in Italy. He sent out these detailed instructions about where to go, where to stay, all this sort of stuff. And so I thought, well, okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll better get onto this. So I got the instructions. And I um, plugged various instructions into uh, EasyJet, or how much airline it was, and so on. And I did what he said, and I did what he said, and so on. And then I went on the car hire website, and I hired a car, and I ticked the button that says sat-nav, and I got to the airport, I got the car, got my sat-nav, I put into the sat-nav the things that he got on my sheet, and so on. And I set off, and I actually went on a bit of a driving holiday with my family for a few days beforehand, where we were going to various places that we found on, I don't know, TripAdvisor, and this sort of thing, on our uh, various advice from, I don't know, like, to the newspaper travel pages and that sort of thing. And we went to the wedding, and the wedding was terrific, and then we went back to the airport, and we handed back the car, and then we flew back to London. And a couple of days later, someone said to me, so which part of Italy were you in? And I kind of stalled. <laughs> and I sort of went, I'm not entirely sure. I wasn't, at no point in all of this had I actually done what you would have had to do 20 years ago, which was to pull out a map, pull out some sort of atlas, and to actually hold up an image of this thing that we call Italy and is recognizable as the boot and all that sort of stuff, and actually plot with that mentality of objectivity and that mentality of representing the world on a piece of paper, I didn't have to do that because at each stage I had an instruction as to what to do next. And the point of my example there, I mean, it's kind of a bit embarrassing that <laughs> I wasn't sort of sufficiently curious that I didn't sort of, you know, do that kind of thing where you kind of look through the atlas and so on. But the point of my anecdote is that there are different ways of knowing the world and different ways of acting on the world, and different technologies change what it means to know where you are, what you're doing, and what you want to do next. And one of the main themes of my book is that the way in which digital technologies in particular have transformed our society and our economy and our politics, and our media in particular, has meant that more and more and more of our attention is focused on either following commands or tracking what is the latest thing that's happened recently, <coughs> acting in this what we might call real-time capacity, living in a state of flow, and less and less of our attention and our time is focused on that sort of map knowledge, that uh, reflection on a static, objective view of the world. I often think in relation to something like Brexit, you know, the, the constant flow of information is such that if I had to sort of somehow kind of explain 
what the hell was going on to someone who had just sort of arrived from Mars. I'm not even sure how the hell I would do it. I have no, I have no objective account. I have no story. I have no narrative. All I have is, did you hear what happened today? And it's that sort of state of being constantly reactive, constantly alert, constantly uh, responsive and adaptive to change and the issuing of commands and the obeying of commands that is what I describe in the book as this nervous state. Nervous in the sense that, in the same way that our nervous system is a wonderful cognitive tool, but it's not a cognitive tool which creates sort of images or static pictures of the world. It tells us how we are right now. It tells us if we're too hot, it tells us if we're afraid, it tells us if we're hungry. It's constantly relaying the information that we need at the time and place that we need it, and it's a crucial evolutionary uh, capacity without which we'd die instantly because we wouldn't know when we were hungry and all that sort of stuff. But it's a type of knowledge that is very different from the type of knowledge that we associate with facts about the world, things like that map of Italy, that representation of the world. So to come back to the thesis in the book, well, I think there are sort of two questions which we need to understand in relation to populism uh, and to go back to this question of, of knowledge and how we engage with the world, technologies we use to engage with the world. It strikes me that we need, on one hand, we need to understand what is in decline, and the other hand, we need to understand what is on the rise. Now, it's easy to say in relation to what is in decline <coughs> that, you know, that reason is, is sort of just being destroyed by liars, that everyone's got too emotional, that, you know, that there are too many sort of uh, blaggards and demagogues and so on. Now, that all may be true, but one of the things which I set out to try and understand is particularly in relation to this question of truth and expertise, what type of knowledge, what type of expertise is it that people are desperately trying to defend or some people are trying to attack? Things like, I suppose, the, the £350 million a week on the side of that bus. What I think it, we need to um, reflect on is that what is currently being challenged and what was being challenged by you know, the sat-nav versus the map um, uh, example is that there was a particular way of viewing the world that I talk about at some length in the book, which developed over the course of the 17th century, the early modern period, coinciding with the birth of nation states as we now understand them. And it gave birth to the rise of modern science, of statistics, of uh, economics, of medicine as we now understand it, also of government administration, the idea that governments can govern through the collection of facts and figures, the collection of uh, records about the population, of knowing about births and deaths, knowing about things like uh, trade balance of trade, the fact that, you know, the idea that you trust a government civil servant on the basis that they are handling information in an objective fashion. Now, this is a particular edifice that has a particular history. I suppose one of the, if anyone's interested in reading more about that, one of the best books on it is Mary Proovey's History of the Modern Fact, which is all about how this particular mentality came into being, which is that it is possible to describe the world in ways that the describer is neutral on. That rather than being someone who is uh, a poet or someone who actually has some stake in the, the things that they're talking about or someone who is trying to persuade you of something, that the way of representing the world in numbers in maps, in diagrams, in tables, in accounting techniques, and so on, that these are ways of representing the world that are neutral on political, moral, and crucially at the time, theological questions. That the question of truth is taken out of the space of political and moral argument. And that is really the achievement of some of these sorts of techniques. Uh, there are things like, as I mentioned, the history of modern fact. So for proving, she argues that if we want to think about what is a fact, and for instance, why is it not a fact that the government sends 250 million pounds a week to the European Union? What does it mean to be a fact? Now, for Poovey, she goes back even further before the 17th century to uh, late medieval times and the birth of governmentary bookkeeping in merchant communities in Italy, which was a particular standardized way of recording one's assets and one's liabilities. We have assets down one side of the table and liabilities down the other side of the table. Here we see this a very early 15th century example of this sort of, of record keeping. And that because it's standardized, 
it becomes a way in which complete strangers can trust one another because they're all using the same techniques of knowledge collection and, um, uh, and, uh, and management. Now, so the standardization of it is absolutely crucial, but also the publicness of it is crucial. The fact is that your books are open for people to see. When we talk, it's not irrelevant. If something is a secret, if something is somewhere being kept uh, out of public, the public eye, it's not quite clear you can still use the term fact. Amazon knows all sorts of things about all of us probably in this room, regardless of whether we use it probably. It's not clear that those things are facts in the same way that the accounts that companies file with companies' house are facts which are laid to the public record in a standardized, publicly recognized fashion uh, and can be the basis on which two people who might hate each other, they might have very strong moral differences, they might have very deep cultural differences or theological differences, but nevertheless, this way of representing the world becomes a basis for civil society and a basis for peace because it provides a way of referring to events, to the past, to the world, to Italy, whatever it might be, in which people's uh, differences become irrelevant in various ways. And that generates a particular notion of expertise in the profession. Journalists can report events. You don't need to trust the journalists necessarily in order to trust the report. And obviously that one's been fraying rather badly over the last few years. But cartographers can just represent space. It's not their moral, it's not, they don't have some kind of philosophical or theological or godly basis on which to be trusted. Um, it's the fact is that they have certain techniques for how they represent it. Statisticians can build up this neutral picture of society. We might all think that the government's doing a very bad thing, but nevertheless we might trust that the Office for National Statistics, when they tell us that such and such is happening to um, unemployment or to the birth rate and so on, that these are facts and that they are therefore somehow outside of the space of political disputes and so on. And crucially, that government officials can act in this impersonal and bureaucratic way. Max Weber, one of the founders of sociology, treated, thought it was hugely important that a particular bureaucratic ethic developed in early modern periods of impersonality. That you know, if you go to a bureaucrat, in a, in a, although we think of bureaucracy as kind of bad in some way, there is actually something rather miraculous about the fact that you can have an interaction with someone who will treat two people in the identical way. We often think of that as sort of rather inhumane and cold, but actually, if you think about it, it's also a ground for a form of equality in its own particular way. Now, the great strength of this, um, oh yeah, these, so I talk a little bit about in the book about some of these kind of early experiments and early efforts to try and apply a mathematical mentality, an objective, rational mentality, to questions that previously were in the space of philosophy, politics, uh, art, moral arguments, and so on, which is really what statistics was doing. The question of how is society right now is taken out of the space of moral judgment and put into the space of mathematical calculation and empirical representation, and thereby create certain issues that will not be fought over endlessly. Um, and I think this, that notion, there are certain things that will not become politicized and fought over, is what we're seeing under threat and uh, decaying in certain ways uh, at this particular moment. Now, the great strength, I think it's, there are strengths and weaknesses of this, of this project, this, this, this 17th century modern ambition to invent techniques that are outside of the realm of politics and which produce knowledge that everyone can agree on. The strength of it is that it allows people to trust one another. It allows, initially, merchants, because they were, it was a bookkeeping technique originally, but then it could be all sorts of other things. It becomes a basis on which strangers, who might know nothing about each other, can nevertheless inhabit a common world. That there are these facts that the newspapers might slightly tweak how they spin things in various ways, but the newspapers can tell you about things like you know, the, the, the business uh, news. They can tell you about the weather. They can tell you things where uh, the, 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 the validity of these claims does not hang on anything beyond the particular professional methods through which these reports have been built up. So its strength is trust. Its weakness is that it's slow. And this, I think, is something that increasingly we find that as a society, the facts of what has taken place often arrive far too late to determine 
uh, different political decisions, uh, framings, avenues, and so on. Often, a proper report as to how particular events have unfolded, particular investigations, the compiling of facts in an objective, neutral, independent fashion, can be a painstaking, laborious exercise. And particularly people who are afraid, people who are suffering, people who are looking for reassurance, do not take much reassurance in that sense of objective, cold, evidence-based analysis. I think this was particularly a sort of problem that someone like Hillary Clinton had in, in the Midwest, was this idea, well, I've got these evidence-based, expert-led policies for the development of these particular declining areas. People didn't want expert, evidence-based, carefully compiled things. They wanted rapid-fire reassurances that their pain and their um, unhappiness was being heard and was being listened to and was going to be acted on, even if that reassurance comes from a known liar. So I think that the strength is in its sense of the capacity for trust. The, the weakness is in its slowness. And I think often you see that around us today, that the problem of how to hold very fast-moving populist leaders to account is that fact-checking often is something that happens, is always, is always late on the scene in some way. The everything's moved on. In a fast-moving society, this uh, type of uh, enterprise that dates all the way back to, uh, as I say, early modern eras when there wasn't a, a mass media, there wasn't anything like a sort of broadcast, let alone digital media, that it was possible for these sorts of reports to be compiled extremely slowly with huge, um, uh, with, with, with a great deal of time. Um, equally, you know, it's sort of like, I mean, it's a bit like the, the, the techniques of, of, of scientists is that it takes many years to do a piece of research. There is then a re review process that can also take over a year, and it can then be another year before the article has been published. So if you are um, uh, producing uh, knowledge on a critical issue, by the time the actual knowledge appears in public, things might have changed drastically uh, and things could seem rather slow and impervious to the urgency of situations. But one of the things which I think is also very important to understand in terms of why statistical uh, representations, these kind of efforts of producing an objective view of society has been uh, in such trouble in recent years, is uh, things like this. One of the uh, things which I think is most startling, which I think has been going on for years, but which hasn't really received much public discussion until these particular uh, populist surges of the last few years, is the way in which inequality in society renders some of the key headline indicators less and less um, true, to put it bluntly. Um, now, this is, um, this is average incomes in the United States from 1979 to 2012. This is the average of the bottom 90%. This is Thomas Piketty's work. You can see the bottom 90% have had, uh, nothing has, uh, has happened um, since the 1970s. All of the income gains have basically been going on in the top 10%. Now, this, these sorts of uh, figures, and one another one which I think is, uh, so just on this, I think it's worth reflecting a little bit about how our public culture and our media and our politics has become increasingly uh, geared around headline indicators such as, you know, the economy is growing, unemployment is falling, these sorts of things. But as the economy changes below the surface, and as people's experiences change below the surface, those indicators become less and less reflective of what's actually going on. The other example I talk about in the book is we take unemployment. I mean, the, Britain is currently celebrating the fact that unemployment is at some sort of 45-year low at the moment. But that covers up all of the underemployment, the non-employment, which is people who have dropped out of the labour market not looking for work, the people who are basically doing work jobs that are far worse than they were 10 years ago because of the uh, slow fallout from the financial crisis and so on. So these indicators increasingly appear to be tools in the hands of politicians to try and win arguments, and that's because they are tools to win arguments in politicians. So there's been a kind of a collapse uh, between a project that originally aimed to uh, take certain questions outside of the realm of politics with a space of politics which has become increasingly uh, turned to numbers and statistics and economic data in order to win arguments on the radio or the, or, the, or the TV and that kind of thing. And I think that to go back to Brexit, 
the, the Remain campaign did not shower themselves in glory by basically trying to whack people with lots of economic data and saying, well, if you do this, your house price is going to fall, and if you do this, blah, 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 and then rolling out experts like Christine Lagarde from the IMF and this sort of thing, saying you mustn't do this, you mustn't do this. They even put out a poster with the names of something like 500 experts who were all <laughs> against leaving the European Union, that people were going to eventually just sort of cave in and do as they were told. So I think that these sorts of headline indicators no longer seem to do quite what, what, uh, what, what I think many, what you might call the liberal elites, hoped they could uh, over the previous 40 years or so. This is a very famous graph, but I think it also has been one of the most cited graphs in relation to this particular populist moment. Uh, you won't be able to read it from, from where you're sitting. But this is about here, this is increase, percentage increase in income, percentage increase in income. And this is percentile of global income distribution. So that's the richest person in the world. That's the poorest person in the world. And so this is global. And it's showing between 1988 and 2008 where the gains were going uh, to uh, income, whose income was rising. And it shows that, yes, global capitalism has made a lot of people in the developing world a lot richer. Not everybody, because it still goes down to zero there. But yes, you've got this huge surge, you've got the massive expansion of the Chinese middle class, and these sort of things that have been much celebrated by um, uh, magazines such as The Economist and that sort of thing. So there has been a huge gain. There's also been, here it is, it's the global 1%, people working in relation to financial services, business services, and so on. And there's been some gains there in the sort of um, uh, the, the, the middle classes of the, um, of the developed world. But here, it goes negative. So you see that there, between about 77 and 85 fifth percentile, there was actually uh, people who were worse off in 2008 than they were in 1988. And that, I mean, it's not quite as simple as this, but one of the reasons that graph has been so uh, 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 referred to um, over the last few years is that in that space, you've got a lot of the, uh, the, 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 the deindustrializing and post-industrial parts of the developed north uh, of people who, who are effectively the, what are often called the left behind and so on. So again, I think one thing that we've seen over the last few years is that statistics have been discredited in lots of ways. Critical and thoughtful statisticians, the, the, it's Branko Milanovic is the um, uh, economist who produced this. There's also Thomas Piketty who's famous for, for doing this kind of work on inequality. So the statistics can somehow put coherent narratives back together again many of the coherent narrative statistics once offered to tell about our common existence, our common lives, no longer function in various ways. What is on the rise? What is it that, how can we live without um, facts of that kind? Well, we don't live entirely without them. There are still certain sources of information that have very high levels of trust. But I think it's true when you look at things like trust levels in, well, particularly, um, one thing which I would actually just say before I move on to the next thing, is that one thing we do know as well from um, uh, studies, of, studies of, of populism, I suppose, um, is that what tends to happen is that trust in expertise and trust in politicians plummets together. That people who have decided that experts, whether it be journalists, the economists, the um, vaccination uh, authorities, the statisticians, the economists, that you're when you believe that your government is riddled with corruption, you also believe those people are riddled with corruption. These are part of a single sense of a loss of sense of, of security in the world, fundamentally. That what you are being told is not true. And that when you're being told it by a politician in the House of Commons or by an economist from the University of Cambridge, ultimately the difference is not all that important. That there is a fundamental sort of existential uh, 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 crisis, I suppose, where uh, faith in those sorts of institutions disintegrates together. It's not that actually the, the, the sort of democratic crisis and the, 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 the crisis of, of, of expert authority are sort of separate things. And one of the things that you see um, uh, is that where the questions of knowledge and questions of democratic um, integrity are closest <coughs> to each other, that people are most suspicious. Uh, journalists, of course, have the uh, lowest levels of trust in our society today. Politicians are around about the same level and so on. But one thing which I would say there in that case is that one thing we need to re reflect on is that we're not necessarily witnessing a crisis of truth in our society, but a crisis of trust. 
So that rather than think about this as a post-truth moment, it's still, a, in some ways, a kind of more familiar one, because the question of trust has been one that we've been talking about in, uh, uh, in, in democratic societies for really quite a long time. It is a fundamental loss of trust that the institutions that provide uh, a common world for us, whether they be called political, whether they be called expert, are no longer doing what they claim to, uh, and are probably riddled with insider interests and so on. Now, so what is it that is on the rise? What, is, what would be a different way of engaging with society or the economy or politics? Now, of course, we can say, well, of course, there's, you know, there, there, there's people being irrational, emotional, there are liars around. This is a sort of story that we've heard a lot about, whether it be about identity politics or about populism. There's been all sorts of claims that, oh, you know, people could just listen to the facts and the experts and calm down. We could go back to the way things were. But what I think is uh, crucial, this brings me back to the sat-nav in Italy, is to understand that one of the uh, things that leaders such as Trump tap into is an existing culture of what I would call a real-time sensibility, a sense that what matters is what's going on right now, that the function of the media, the function of economic institutions, the function of uh, the devices in our home and so on is to allow us to be in a state of constant real-time alertness and adaptation and of knowing things as quickly as possible. That what these devices do for us, and the reason we check our social media feeds compulsively, is because we want to know things before it's, in some sense, too late, whatever too late might happen for me. Now, in a, out in the wild, in an evolutionary sense, where this is really very important, too late means something quite scarce, because you're going to get gobbled up by a, by a predator. But what it means to live in a society where you're probably less likely to get gobbled up by a predator, to be constantly relying on your um, nervous system and on these uh, sort of nervous devices and technologies and so on, is, I think, a different question altogether. The real-time sensibility. It's not something that was suddenly born in 2016. Actually, if you think about it, as our economy and our society has been reconfigured by digital technologies over the last 30, 40 years, all manner of different sort of display systems have been created. If you think of those display systems from the 17th century I showed you earlier, which is to create these static, authoritative, public, checkable representations of the world. But here are my accounts. I declare them. They are now open to view, and they will remain um, uh, available to be seen. But the, a different way of representing the world has been born by the, the spread of digital technologies in our society, and, and I think first in our economy. These are the Bloomberg terminals on which the financial system, through which the financial system is mediated. The entire purpose of these sorts of technologies is to relay real-time information. Financial networks, financial markets have always faced technological challenges to try and come up with better, faster, real-time ways of representing what is, what is the price now. I don't want to know what the price was five minutes ago. I want to know the price that is as up to the moment as possible, because that way I can make the most money as possible. One of the first of these was the ticker tape, which was a way of like showing the numbers that went across, showing what it is right now. But in the financial system, knowing quickly is absolutely fundamental to how you make money. Take this to extreme, you have the high-frequency traders who put these huge cables under the Atlantic or move their servers 10 meters closer to the Atlantic so that they can get the price data a 0.00001% per second faster than their rivals and make huge sums of money simply by being a little bit faster to know a price. Then, of course, the things like the Facebook feed, the Twitter feed, this sort of thing, the thing that forces us or, or for some reason compels us to check compulsively technologies and so on. News is something which is increasingly encountered via a live feed, a news feed. Uh, what's going on right now? What was the last thing that happened? Um, in, in Brexit or in whatever it might be. Um, have you heard? What was that thing that, you know, you mustn't be out of touch, you mustn't be out of, out of, out of time in some way. And this is what, um, to go back to my example of the sat-nav, it's that it's possible to live in a world that is sufficiently saturated with these technologies but which no longer relies on having um, facts in the original uh, objective, dispassionate, static sense of the words at one's disposal. I mean, I, so we've all got these kind of sort of memories, or well, if we're uh, old enough, I suppose, but of, uh, you know, how did you go out in as recently as sort of, 
I don't know, 2000? Well, you, I had a file flash, it had a little atlas in it, it had a little, it had my phone numbers in it, it had, you know, it had a little bits of paper, I had addresses written down and that sort of stuff. Probably far more efficient than what we do now, but nevertheless, we had to relay things to a type of static record or carry static records around in a way that we don't uh, any longer. Now, I'm not saying that these things are, are, are bad in and of themselves, but I think that a society that is organized around different templates of facts or different template of knowledge uh, and, and of truth will take on different political characteristics. This is what I'm trying to argue in the book. Um, and I think the first problem that we need to recognize with this is that this ambition towards the real time also has quite a long history. But whereas the history of the modern fact, in, in previous terms, was born out of uh, a desire to create trust and peace in certain respects. That's not to say that it was only used by good people. I talk in the book about how it was also used by colonialists to create maps of, uh, of territories that they had invaded. Uh, of course, the uses of, of, of facts by particular um, uh, uh, forms of capitalism uh, to, as a basis for exploitation and so on. So it's not to say that they're kind of morally innocent, but I think that the function of them was to create particular types of, of trust relations. Um, but there is also a long history of ambitions to create this type of real-time knowing of the world, but its origins are in warfare. Its origins are in situations where you need to know faster than someone else. That there is a competition to be the first to know. That that is the mentality. It's rather similar to what I was saying about the, you know, the evolutionary sort of example where, you know, I need to know if there's a, a, a tiger coming up behind me fast, you know, quickly, otherwise, you know, that's it. But this is one of the examples I talk about in the book, is the Napoleon's Chappé Telegraph, I don't know how you pronounce it, but he built this sort of network throughout France and going into various countries that he'd invaded in Europe, which was a way of trying to convey information across the country very quickly. It was basically these sorts of um, semaphore signs that were used, um, and they could be seen, and then another one was pulled, and another one was pulled. And information could get around the country uh, faster than it was possible to move uh, people or uh, pieces of paper or anything like this. So that the question of how to know things quickly, how to convey information as fast as possible, is born, I would argue, in what might be considered, I guess, a paranoid sensibility of I need to know faster than someone else so I can either take advantage of them or defend myself against them. It is not the aspiration to create public records or public representations of the world, it is more an aspiration to bring the world under some kind of control. Now, we also see, when you think about that, uh, think about these technologies as quasi-military technologies, then to also think a bit about how these tools of social media and, um, uh, 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 and data analysis have entered our politics over the last uh, 10 years, in some sense, what they do is create a sense of wartime-like mobilization, but in the space of democracy. Now, of course, if it's done by kind of people we like, like Obama, then it's, oh, well, that's wonderful, isn't it? And if it's people we don't like, then we think it's all kind of sinister and, and, and Putin's doing it and that sort of stuff. But there is a sort of, um, uh, nevertheless, the, the question of, of um, mobilizing one's forces and doing so faster than some opponent is a, 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 a compulsion or a, a problem that shifts from the realm of warfare and of military strategy and military mobilization, and it starts to pervade different areas of civil society and democracy and the economy. So the first problem with it is I think that it, it makes, it, it poses the question of, of, of combativeness, of that these are technologies that allow us to mobilize uh, amongst ourselves, uh, against them in some ways, that there is perhaps a logic of, of, of division, maybe. Um, it's also a condition of anxiety, a condition of, well, once you've got um, the capacity to know things uh, as quickly as possible, well, maybe how do you ever, how do you stop using them the whole time? I mean, this is in some ways the, the problem of social media addiction and smartphone addiction and that sort of stuff. How do you really discover the moments of rest and peace and of not knowing things that are as up to date as possible? And then I think the third thing which I'd say about this is that at a certain moment, and this is me in my, in my car in Italy, reliance on a real-time sensibility of, 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 of these sorts of technologies reduces um, our reliance and perhaps even our 
patience for that other type of knowledge, that objective representational type of knowledge, which creates these independent objective pictures of the world, which is the, the, the map of Italy type of knowledge. And that, I think, is one of the things that we're encountering in all sorts of different walks of life at the moment. People, you know, we all, I think, increasingly struggle to read. There is a sort of sense that things that don't move or respond to us are, can be hard to concentrate on in some ways. Um, that's happening, I think, to, to, to pretty anyone who's been touched at all by digital technologies. But it's also, I think, the problem if you think about the way in which our economy has been uh, governed in the build-up and since the financial crisis, which has been a perpetual sense of what do we do now? How do we respond to this emergency? How do we react? How do we take control? How do we deal with this evolving, convulsive thing? Meanwhile, economists who in the past and still do try to create these slower, perhaps sometimes later, um, objective, critical accounts of why this system is perhaps actually fatally uh, risky in various ways, don't get listened to because they don't seem so useful in a world which is geared towards uh, the instant reaction and dealing with the uh, most short-term type of response. Um, so the ability to actually know whether or not this is a good economy in the first place goes into decline to the same extent that the ability to find out how it's doing right now and what, what's our, what should our response be and what are the prices saying now, that as that second sensibility rises, that the, the voices of those or the authority of those who are trying to come up with a, a rather more analog, traditional way of, of knowing and criticizing the world go into decline. I think it's also, when you think about the, the, the significance of rapid reaction to populism, it's also one of the things that I think when I was researching the book I found very interesting, and I think is a very important aspect of understanding um, of, of the success of, of, of populists in recent years, is the extent to which su populist successes speak to relatively short-term changes in people's lives. Of course, there are whole areas of the Midwest and so on who, where, um, uh, that have been sort of devastated by deindustrialization. Those people in the what's called the elephant graph who are in the um, sort of below zero bit and so on. But one of the things that, that, has, that has been unearthed from some of the studies of voting behavior in relation to populism is that often uh, people who are most responsive to the messages, particularly of nationalists, have had a relatively recent decline in their fortunes or a relatively recent experience that damages their self-esteem. So in the United States, we know that if it weren't for about 150,000 people scattered across Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, Hillary Clinton would be president of the United States right now. It, came, it was that close. And so the, it's not to say that everyone who voted for Trump was a sort of downtrodden, deindustrialized form of uh, auto worker. Of course, that's not true. Most of them were very rich. But in those crucial areas, which swung it from Clinton to Trump, and in particular, the counties that had voted for Obama in 2012, but voted for Trump in 2016, there's a study by Mike Davis in Jacobin Magazine where he <coughs> shows that in every single one of those counties that swung from Obama to Trump, there had been a plant closure, an industrial plant closure, during the election campaign itself. So there wasn't just a sort of sense of there's been 40 years of no wage increases, to go back to the tipping graph. There was also a short-term shock that had created an immediate sense of I am being, I am losing something, I am being humiliated, I have lost the basis for my self-esteem in some ways. Equally, one of the, the studies of, of, of right-wing populism in Europe, one of them shows that where it concentrates, the voting behavior, is not in areas where there's very high unemployment, which is an aggregate, so unemployment, you know, it's like, it might be 20%, something like that, but actually where there are sudden sharp increases in unemployment. So it's where there is a sudden change, a sudden loss of, of, of fortunes. And one of the things which I try to look at in the book and try to understand, I sort of use, try to think about this sort of psychologically and, and psychoanalytically, is that I think one thing that that says to us, which I think we need to reflect on, and one of the kinds of things that I think that the modern factual edifice is very bad at grasping, is that maybe losses are much more important to how we feel about ourselves and our society and uh, our, our sense of our welfare than games, but also that the experience of loss 
the experience of losing one's job or the experience of losing one's you know, high street, whatever it might be, the process through which you go through as you lose it shapes us far more powerfully than just you know, being poor in a way that economists sort of see everything as aggregates. It's sort of static aggregates. So he's on 80,000, he's on 40,000, he, he's on 20,000. Therefore, the 80,000 person is four times, should be four times happier than the 20,000. Know, there's a sort of crude kind of objectivism about it. But actually, what we know and what the, the populism studies have, have, have shown is that the person on 80,000, if they lost a lot of income, they could end up far less happy than the person who was on 20,000 but had been on a sort of stable income for, for many years. And it's those experiences of loss. Now, to a psychoanalyst, that's not remotely interesting, surprising. I mean, the, the, we are shaped by, our, by how we, what we lose and how we lose it and how we deal with it, how we lose it and that sort of thing. But I think that to the extent that we live in a society that we've tried to govern by our statistics and facts and economics for a long time, the part of the shock of things like Brexit and Trump is the discovery that although sort of objectively, yeah, we're sort of GDP's one percent higher, and if we leave the European Union, it's going to do that, and you know, why would you possibly do that? But actually, there are aspects of the human condition and human psychology that have come into light and have not been properly and adequately grasped by some of those more sort of statistical and economic um, uh, approaches. Oh, this was. Um, yeah, sorry, this was just about sort of where did our sort of screen-based real-time sensibility, you know, how did it kind of develop? And this is, this is an example, this is the um, semi-automated ground, it's called Sage, I can't remember what the E is for, but anyway, but this is a kind of famous Cold War IBM control room of all these people basically watching screens for signs of incoming nuclear threats during the 1950s. But, you know, in some ways, the world that we now inhabit, where we sort of sit at screens with mouses and then we check our phones and our iPads and so on, it's, this, is the, this is where that world originates. These were the first people for whom the question of getting up-to-the-minute data that they could react to, uh, these were the first people for whom that was a, a, a crucial issue. So I want to end by basically posing a question. So what do we want knowledge to do? Because what we want knowledge to do will determine the type of politics, the type of politics that results. And I think that there are sort of two answers to the question that I've outlined uh, this evening. The first is, do we want our knowledge to produce the maximum agreement amongst as many people as possible, to produce a basis on which there can be some kind of consensus? Well, that ultimately is the aspiration of modern science. You know, when people say there is no doubt that climate change is, is man-made, which you, know, you hear this said, what they mean is that there is as near to a consensus across the scientific community as possible. It is consensus that is the measure of truth, ultimately. It is the fact that all of these people agree on a certain thing. Now, you, and then you get these kind of outliers where people say, well, that's so far out from the consensus that we're going to ignore it in various ways. And in that sense, the project of modern knowledge and modern science is one that works in tandem with the pursuit of peace in certain respects. Again, that's not to say that it is, has had an unambiguously clean history, because it certainly hasn't. But at least as an aspiration about what we want knowledge to do for us, that uh, ideal that, that it is possible to create pictures of the world, create reports of the world, which, regardless of other cultural, moral, um, religious disagreements we might have, that we can at least agree that these are facts and so on. And in some ways, that's what something like the BBC desperately... I mean, BBC has a lot of critics all over the place, but I think you have to hand it to them. They do try, in some ways, to hold together um, uh, uh, an ability to... Uh, I mean, they get criticised for, for not being harsher on Brexit. They also get criticised for being too harsh on Brexit. In some ways, there's a sort of... What they end up doing is playing this kind of role of trying to create an account of the world that, that, that um, most British people or most people in the world can, uh, can, can broadly agree on. Now, how well they do that is another matter, but that is, in some ways, a, a cons consensus uh, value of knowledge. Or is it to react fastest to a changing world? Do we want knowledge that tells us stuff that will give us an advantage over other people? Well, yes, if you work in financial markets, that's what you want. You want tips, you want, uh, you want uh, to be able to react fast, you want your screen to work effectively so that you can see things quickly. You know, financial traders, some of them even take brain supplements so that they're really, their concentration is better than their, than their rivals in some ways. You know, there are all sorts of examples in Silicon Valley where um, uh, Facebook has, 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 
have built an entire platform which is purely oriented around scraping data from new startups in Silicon Valley so that if anything was to come along that might possibly threaten their business model or come up as a rival, that they are alerted immediately so that they can buy it and normally close it down. But that, that is a sort of a, a, a mentality of paranoia and of conflict that unless you're quick, unless you know things before other people, then you're going to be harmed or potentially destroyed. And again, it's also what we you know, sort of talk about in the business world of networking, which is a way of like trying to find out what other people know and trying to know stuff that other people don't know and so on. Now, I think that one thing which about this first type of knowledge is that it does have a commitment to the public in some ways, that there is a kind of, you know, I mean, I know there's terrible things with scientific publishing, that it's all inaccessible and behind paywalls and that kind of stuff, but there is a, a, a sort of governing ideal of the sharing of knowledge. I think one of the problems we face as a society today is that as we've moved more towards this kind of data-based way of trying to interact with the world, that knowledge is increasingly hoarded as a kind of source of competitive advantage as an asset, or even as a weapon through which uh, people can get an advantage over someone else. And a lot of the paranoia I think we see around us at the moment, you know, what Dominic Cummings is doing with the data banks and 10 Downing Street and this sort of stuff, and you know, what's Cambridge Analytica and so on, all this sort of stuff doing. Part of the paranoia is precisely, or much of the paranoia, is precisely that we don't know. That what they do is done in secret because part of the benefit that it gives them is precisely its secrecy. That if it was to be done in public, it wouldn't have the same value because it's knowledge in the service of competitive advantage or conflict rather than knowledge in the service of trust. So, just to end, what do we, so what? <laughs> I think that, of course, we need to defend aspects of that 17th century ideal of a kind of public knowledge base, of, of, of resources of, of public knowledge. It's really not clear how liberal democracy, as we understand it, representative democracy, can function, how you can have, we can assume that you know, those people in parliament are acting vaguely on our behalves, or those people um, in um, you know, the Office of National Statistics are basically telling us the truth, and so on, is that unless there are some publicly creditable, publicly visible means, you don't trust those people are actually acting in some sense in the public interest, then the very possibility of a common objective world can disintegrate. I think that's no, that might sound a bit hysterical, but I think it's not, it's not um, uh, I think what we, what, what, what we have seen signs of is that unless there is an investment in public knowledge, in public research, and in public, um, publicly oriented journalism and broadcasting, there's no reason why, there's no automatic reason why I and someone on the other side of the street have to have the same ideas about, um, you know, whatever, climate change or the, whether or not the economy is doing well or badly, whatever it might be. It's, there's no, there's no, it's, not a, it's not a given, it's not guaranteed that strangers living in large complex societies will hold the same uh, uh, understanding of what is real, of what is true and so on. But defending that isn't just simply about whacking people around the head and saying, listening to experts more, and you know, you've got to trust facts and things more. Defending that is about defending the entire edifice. It's about looking after the institutions that actually uh, 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 preserve it and make it work. Public service broadcasters, uh, public universities, um, the sources of public knowledge that um, can allow people to actually uh, 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 understand society in the same way. Um, and then my final point is one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of sort of, uh, in relation to, to politics, there's a lot of sense of, you know, our emotions against sort of, it's emotion versus rationality. Well, one thing which I think maybe is a more helpful framing, which we can explore in discussion if you like, is fast versus slow. And this is a kind of major theme in my book, is that maybe the problem is not people becoming kind of more emotional, which after all doesn't have to be a bad thing, but actually it's about a society where technologies have accelerated to the point where people can only possibly act on impulse, on instinct, in a reactive way, in a nervous way, uh, and are not able to engage in the necessarily slower processes through which things are validated, verified, checked, consulted, criticised, and so on, which their slowness isn't necessarily a, a, a sort of entirely bad thing. You could say it's a feature, not a bug, essentially. Just that they don't always get that much credibility in a public sphere that has been organised increasingly in a real time way. So I hope some of that was interesting, and I'm going to stop there.